Thanks for clicking on the video. Hit us with a like on Facebook, a subscribe on YouTube, a follow on Instagram. You can find us at Homie and the Dude. That is at Homie and the Dude. Thanks again. Enjoy the video. What is up, y'all? Welcome to episode 33, also known as the first episode of season two. We are super, super psyched with lots of stuff going on in season two. But first of all, this is our first podcast of the season, and we've got a banger. We've got Espen Bodnez with us, who is a wingsuit world champion. We are honored to have you here today, Espen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Tom and Bodhi. Yeah. I'm excited to have this good chat and see where it's going. Curious. It's still Fantastic. Yeah. Espen, we'll just hold one second. I'm going to shout out our sponsor. Our sponsor is Vist.Kitchen which is a vegan takeaway restaurant in Bristol, England. Fantastic vegan food for all you vegans and veggies out there. Look up Kitchen for their latest promos. Great. Thanks, Espen. Back to you. So what's going on, man? I am home here in, um, on the west coast of Norway. And uh, it's wintertime. It's really cold here, actually. It's uh, about minus 15 degrees outside. So um, it's, it's a cold time of year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, normally I, I pretty much jump off something every day, um, surviving by the use of a parachute. But <laughs> now in wintertime, it's, it's uh, well, you get cold fingers. So I prefer mm. to mostly go skiing and, mm. um, you know, just following the seasons, whatever it brings of fun. And, uh, but at the same time, try and keep current. So some jumps every now and then, some skiing and uh, hanging out and mm. slow it. Do you, do you know what, Aspen, I, I wanted to ask, you know, because obviously you can tell being from Norway and whatnot, the, the Alpine culture is rooted deep within your history. Like you, you, I, I can, can feel it from when we've talked to you for these last couple of five minutes and everything. And you've said, you know, uh, you were you're worried you weren't going to make the podcast because you lost a ski on the way down to your house back here. So, you know, I can tell that it's rooted in, in what you do. I want to ask how you transitioned from skis and snow and climbing as a child to then jumping off of things and uh, and, and putting your life in the in the hands of a parachute and things like that. What, what, when did that transition happen and how, how did that go down? That's, that's seriously a good question, Bodhi. Um, yeah, so, so I, I think, I think um, is it okay that I answer this question a bit long? Yeah, yeah, do yeah, go yeah, for it. Because yeah, yeah. it's, it's partially about me personally, but it's also about how people actually transition into um, extreme sport or, or more mm -hmm. specifically base jumping. So cool. I come from an area in Norway where it's very popular to go climbing. It's very popular to go skiing. And uh, I mean, climbing in wintertime as well. So people are using the seasons and uh, they go out in the mountains to risk for fun, like to actually just take risk for the pure pleasure of it. And uh, well, it's not normally not the, the, the risk in itself that make it fun, but it's the challenge of actually solving a potential dangerous situation in a good, elegant, safe way. It, mm. it gives you mastery, it gives you feeling of accomplishment. And that this tradition or, or this idea of risking for fun goes not that far back. Um, and uh, it wasn't really accepted to go out in the mountains and climb if you go 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, back in time. 
And yeah. uh, my father's generation, or, or when, when he and his friends started climbing back in the 70s, and well, there were people before him, but that generation, that's my parents, or the, the, the similar to those people, mm. they kind of paved the way. They made it acceptable to go out and, uh, you know, climb on a rope or you know, ascend mountains and, and do, do great things when it just came to the challenge of reaching somewhere where it had to involve risk. Mm. And I grew up with that tradition. I, I grew up climbing from the age of five, six. Um, and uh, I grew up with hiking steep mountains with skis and, and ski down where the challenge was, you know, to, to carve those nice turns down there. Or it was about looking at mountains and trying to find lines to climb or just, just the ability to get up and down somewhere. And uh, so, so that became part of childhood and became part of childhood for a lot of my friends as well. I have a lot of friends that aren't necessarily base jumpers today, but they're really good in the mountains. They're really good at climbing and skiing and kind of like being those alpine people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the step from being pretty solid at taking risk for fun in a way in, in the mountains to become a base jumper is pretty short. Like yeah. if, you, if you look at how we base jump, especially in this area, it's a lot about getting up there. Like mm -hmm. it, it can be hours and hours of uh, pretty challenging hills to climb. And uh, you need to take a lot of assessments when it comes to weather and the, the topography or like the, the whole larger aspects of, of what kind of nature you're dealing with. And if you don't have that package, like if you're absolutely blank on mountains, then the journey is really long. And, and this brings me back to why I ended up being a base jumper because I took a skydiver course back in 2000. And uh, at that time I was 21 and I've been, you know, I've been through a whole childhood of, of all kinds of outdoor sports and uh, taking a skydiver was a seriously scary thing. Gotta say like it, the, the, the first skydiver was the most, scary moment of my life i was like i actually blacked out like i couldn't even remember what was going on in wow. the side of the airplane because so, it was so, the so the far away from my comfort zone the moment you jumped out the plane you felt like you had a bit of a blackout or was it while you were while you were falling <laughs> well I, when i landed the instructor came over to me and he asked me how it was and i was like <laughs> i don't remember like wow. I, before, I, I remember hanging in a canopy, but I just don't remember letting go of the airplane. This, this is a, something called a static line course, and yeah. it's a line that is attached to the airplane. And when yeah. you let go of the airplane, the canopy just release immediately. And I just yeah. couldn't remember what happened after I let go. And it just it tells a little bit about how what what kind of mental overload I had. I was just too scared, but. I did love it. Like I, I truly found it interesting and I went up again and again and again. And I took a skydiver course in September, 2000. And mm -hmm. I did my first base jump in late April, 2001. So it was mm -hmm. only like seven, eight months, eight, nine months between started skydiving and go base jumping. And ironically from that moment or, or from when I started jumping off antennas and bridges and mountains, I felt way more home doing base jumping than skydiving because it was almost yeah. like I was back home again. I was back where I belong, which was 
just hiking up in very familiar surroundings and uh, you know make assessments and considerations that was very similar to what I've done before in climbing or skiing and yeah. then yeah just jump off Amazing. nice do you know what it's 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 crazy a few things that you mentioned so I, I actually grew up me Tom and Tom and my mom um, had me in Jackson Hall Wyoming in, in America and uh, great Alpine country as well and like it's it's just a very different lifestyle when you're living it don't get me wrong we for my life I was only there for five years and then we transitioned elsewhere however in that time though I learned how to ski I was put on skis from the moment I could like stand and hold my own weight um, you guys had like it's everything from snow chains in the car to like crazy weatherproof like jackets at all times and like it's just all this stuff that it really does adapt the whole lifestyle when you're in the alpine place. So I understand that what you're saying about the best base jumpers are the ones that understand the mountains, the ones that understand how to get up there because at the end of the day as well, <laughs> a skydive or a base jump or, or even a wingsuit, it's only what? We're talking like 10, 15 seconds. Like, you know, you're, you're not in the air for ages, but you do spend an hour, two hours, unless a helicopter is lifting you and dropping you there. We- you spend hours climbing up. You know, which is a, uh, which is pretty crazy when 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 you think about it. That it's it's that it shows how much that those few seconds are worth it. Do you know what I mean? Like you guys, you guys go through all this shit to get to the top, and it shows that those seconds in the air are worth like gold dust to you guys. Like it's worth everything. So that's interesting that you found that kind of love. Um, let me ask: Is there a steep learning curve with wingsuit? Because to me, it's like cool uh oh like i want to go wingsuiting and someone's like cool here's the suit jump <laughs> and you're like uh okay like well what's what's the learning curve kind of describe how do you train how do you prepare and how do you get to wingsuit because i know you were part of the first movement and you guys kind of developed it so how did that development kind of come around yeah is that, so first of all um learning how the wingsuit back in 2000 was um it's very different than today because mm-hmm. the modern wings that are, are not the modern, but the more commercial product of, of like the possibility for everyone to go wingsuiting that I believe it came in 99. So it was mm-hmm. very new on the market. And uh, because pretty much nobody in the world knew how to fly a wingsuit, the, the level was extremely low globally. Yeah. It was almost like joining wingsuiting in 2000 one, two, three was basically to join this little group of people that were trying together to figure out how on earth to fly well. Mm-hmm. While today you have a way higher level because naturally it's been 20 years and uh, you, you join into a sport where you have uh, role models and you know highly skilled potential mentors that uh, you can look up to and you can learn from them. The, mm-hmm. the journey to become a wingsitter could i i wouldn't say it's harder or easier than anything else if you compare let's say you want to go surfing and you never surfed before it's definitely going to take you about i don't know 100 120 30 solid surfing days before you look like a surfer before it starts looking like something that you know it's kind of decent surfing and uh, it's pretty much the same in skydiving and wingsuiting and base jumping as well. You, you need to put in about 100, 150 solid days at the drop zone where you, you get some good skydiving happening and uh, you get the 
proper progression and um, yeah that's gonna pretty much bring you to to a level where you can safely start base jumping mm -hmm. and uh, so so it's like people have a tendency of looking at it a bit mystical it's like ooh, this like sketchy dangerous sport where people are doing those like really radical things but ultimately if you if you do all the steps you take the scatter course you, know, you get the skills and you start wing sitting from airplane and then you get those skills and then you take a base course or something like if you take those steps nothing is really mystical anymore it's just a natural progression that i would say most of us is able to do it's um you need to be above average risk willing i would say or there need to be some kind of motivation behind it that uh, really drives you forward because it is seriously scary like to jump off a mountain is it's still scary like i've done it for 20 years and uh you you need some kind of reason to do it well we 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 <laughs> We've joked about it, and I guess we were like, for a, I guess maybe it was a couple of years ago, we literally did not know how you went from saying, I want to do the sport to actually being, you know, floating down, you know, a ridge. And we were like, so how does that even happen? We couldn't connect up that you would start out with skydiving first, and you have a shoot, and, you know, there's, there's, there's steps along the way. So we were just thinking it's the, the craziest learning curve in the history of, like, things that humans, <laughs> it's like, I'll try it. Let's see if I can do it. If I can't, I'm dead. That's basically, <laughs> that's basically, but no, there's, so there is definitely a, a systematic way to take, to de-risk the sport, which we somehow as laymen, we just didn't connect up, but now you can totally make sense. So you may, sorry, I can give you the numbers. It's, uh, it, it won't take that much time. So to take a scatter course is about one week. One mm -hmm. week where it, it costs quite a lot of money, but you have a lot of resources on you and, and you learn how to safely jump out of an airplane and land at a pre-decided landing area. And then you have to move on doing about 200 skydives oh, in wow. a fairly short time frame. You can't do 200 skydives over 20 years. Like it, it needs to be within a little less than two years. So you need mm -hmm. to put in fair amount of weekends and, and put aside some resources to, to to make this happen you do those 200 skydives then you can do a something called a first jump course in wingsuit which is normally it's just a day it's like a day or two with an instructor that helps you you know put the wingsuit on the skydive rig and make you understand things and then you go through a couple of jumps together and then you are an independent wingsuit skydiver and you can basically just jump your ass off with a wingsuit out of airplanes. So is that is that an international protocol on how to become an international wingsuit skydiver? Yeah, pretty much. There are a few exceptions. There are definitely some uh, cowboys, sketchy republics where you can go and you know get away from those rules. But uh, from a personal point of view, those rules are not very hard. It's um, they're not tough. They're not strict. You yeah. skydives isn't actually taking that much time and it's really worth it because in the end when you jump out an airplane with a wingsuit it's way more fun and it feels much better if you've done like a proper amount of skydives in advance and then when you've done those 200 skydives and you start wingsuiting a little bit and you reach 250 skydives then you can take a base course that's normally 10 days it can be a week where you get through all the like 
learning how to pack, learning how to deal with all kinds of different base jumping and you jump with bridges and you get used to it. And then you move to mountains that are very overhanging and then you nail the exit and you start like understanding more and more about it. And then after a couple of weeks, you are an independent base jumper. And if you put in a season where you jump off whatever you can find that is safe, safe-ish, <laughs> you... Um, well, there are no one that is really doing a proper wingsuit base course. It's mm-hmm. like when you come to the point where you've done all that skydiving, all that wingsuit skydiving, all that base jumping, you've done it for a year. You know so many people that you can basically just reach out to someone that have done a fair amount of wingsuit and be like, hey, can you can you just help me get through those first couple of wingsuit base jumps safely? And people are, most people would help you and then, um, then you're there. And let's say after a season or like 100, 200 wings jumps, you are going to realize that it's not that difficult and uh, it's lots of fun. And uh, most people would start flying a little bit more like close to terrain and cruise around. So for some of you two guys, you you would be, I would say that you would need about two years from now if you put in the resources and then you would jump off mountains in the wingsuit. Amazing. Well, um, I'm not sure my heart can deal with two years, but <laughs> um, no, that's that 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 would be absolutely insane. That's that's absolutely incredible. And I, I remember I, I watched a, a thing with you, and you said um, that it's actually so easy to steer your body in the air that you believe in a former life humans probably could fly in some point. And I, I thought that was a really interesting thing that you said. I thought that was that was really kind of uh, kind of curious. So um, w- when you are in the air, obviously um, there's lots of dynamics and stuff. But something I, I was curious about is when you're pulling your chute. Um, obviously, keeping your like frame is what's keeping you gliding. When you go to pull your chute, does that often add like rolls, or does that like change your trajectory and things like that, or uh, or is it something that if you do fast enough, you're still going in the same straight line? You know, the, 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 the hardest thing you will ever do in a wingsuit is to open the parachute, like to, to, to pull out that handle. That's by far the hardest yeah. thing you do. It's, yeah. The thing is, like, when you jump on an airplane, you, you jump out, you start flying, and you, you might fly for two or, or three minutes. So much time to train and to practice all those little moves with your shoulders or head or, you know, feet, whatever. And then you have like two seconds to practice a proper pull. So mm. all of us are way better at flying than pulling. Yeah. Ironically, because the most critical phase you will ever find is to get out that parachute. Like you seriously need to get it out. And uh, we've, we've actually seen a lot of incidents and terrible accidents because people fail when they're gonna open the parachute. It, mm. it, it all goes back to that limited time when you can truly practice well and so uh, it's your parachute is, is the pull on your body or is it on is it closer to is it to allow you to maintain your frame it's back here on the back okay so you, you can probably see it in some videos i don't have any videos here right now mm-hmm. but uh when you're flying you're you, you straighten out your arms, straighten out your legs, right? And the, the, your whole body is pretty much like stretched out in this like semi-X position. And uh, in the second you want to pull, you have to reach the, the right hand and that hand need to go behind the wing 
and uh. you need to find that handle and you can't see it. It's, it's not visually there. You, you have to feel it. You have to know exactly where it is. It's in the exact same place as it is in, uh, with no wingsuit skydiving or base jumping. Like the handle is in the same place every time. But you have a big wing that you need to reach over and you have to do all those moves pretty perfect. If you do mistakes, if you mess up something in the process, you might get material in between the hand and the, the, the handle. And we've, we've seen this on, on several situations where people in skydiving, they end up uh, using the reserve canopy because they can't get out the main parachutes. And in base jumping, well, you, you only have one parachute. So if, it, if you can't get it out, you're crashing. Yeah, that's dude. Yeah. That's, so when you say you got to get your hand uh, behind and behind the wing, that whole motion. I'm picturing, you know, you're sort of flat out, and as soon as you move your hand, like it looks like the very minor movements are are creating, you know, turns and and different elevation changes and all that stuff. So as soon as you do that, are you basically on the clock for a couple seconds before that movement affects the direction you're going? And like I can see you moving that right hand, this hand, your right hand over, and you're just, all of a sudden if you don't hit that that parachute handle you're making a hard left or a hard right is it um is that the case or or can you or can you recover from that if i miss it once can i then go back and be like okay i've got another five seconds ten seconds i'm going to try again if you're a good wing sitter if you've done the proper work the groundwork of, of being really good at flying it you are gonna remain with heading control, like you are actually going to be able to, to go for the pull and, and stick to the heading, uh, you know, mm. not turn or anything. And uh, you are also probably going to be able to remain quite symmetry, uh, symmetrical. So if, if I'm standing here and I'm fine, yeah. and I'm going for pull, I can go with both hands in. Okay. Both hands in and then pull. If I go with only one hand, that that's gonna create a little bit of asymmetry yeah some mm -hmm. people do that though some people do it and okay. uh, it can work and you can contract a little bit by taking one arm in and then you you know change a pitch for your shoulder or something like that but personally it's i always stick to symmetry i always mm. try to fly like I, I fly everything like i'm flying my wingsuit i'm changing the speed a little bit for for the opening sequence I go in to, to, to grab the handle and I remain flying and I pull it out while I remain flying and I fly and I fly and I fly and I fly until the canopy, the, the parachute opens and I still fly it. And then I just yeah. never stop flying. And yeah. it, it's, it's a bit of a principle that a lot of people that I would say are quite experienced and are quite into the small details. We, we really believe you have to fly the whole way. Like you can never, you know, go in and pull and just kind of give up and close your eyes. It's everything you do need to be smooth, need to be controlled. Because if you do mistakes, but the mistakes are happening while you are in full flying control, you're calmer, you got more control and you can just sort out the things that prepare like if, it, if there is an issue. But if you are kind of like, closing your eyes and just grabbing for something and something goes wrong, you're just falling like a rock and you're out of control. And uh, 
Yeah. If you if you're one of those that do six, seven, eight hundred jumps a year, um, you you just need every single detail you do to be controlled and well thought of. Mm. So I can imagine it, it's it's not one of those kinds of things you're doing when you're hungover <laughs> on a on a Monday or something. But um, but what I actually wanted to ask you is, you know, I, I know you've also kind of talked about um, equipment safety and you know making sure that your stuff you you have a rigid routine where you check your shit you recheck your shit you ch you make sure you check your like back and you you do this whole routine so I, I know there has been once or twice in your career where you have had some equipment fails i know once your foot slipped out of uh slipped out of your um your your suit or something and uh, and you you were a bit bummed about that and that was a, a scary one how much of like wait, wait, your wait, dude, dude. Dude, did you yeah, say God. did you say a bit bummed? I, well, <laughs> dude, dude, yeah, that's a good point. Well, I guess, I'm trying to put it in proportion. For me, I would be like, "What the? Why am I doing this? Quit my life! Like this is ridiculous! Like I didn't check that. I'm in it. Like I would freak out." But I'm sure for Espen, he was just like, "That's ah, a bad day. I was tired. I forgot my foot thing. I'll, next time I'll get it." Like it was it was a bad day. You know, I, I don't know what you're thinking, but I want to ask like. How much of your time when you're up on the mountain and you're like getting your suit on, how much of that is safety checks? Like, or does it start earlier? Does it start with packing the bag and then do it like all the way through? What, like, how much of that is safety checks? Well, it's a lot. And um, I would say that if you truly want to build up a system, and, and this is how I do it, and I do believe most others do the same. So, the way I skydive when, when I jump out of airplanes is almost identical with the way I do base jumps. So I have pretty much the same shoes, uh, same amount of clothes, same gloves, same helmet, goggles. You do the, the, the and, and the, the wingsuit is of course the same. The only real change is that the actual rig, the, the actual backpack that I'm jumping with is a base rig and not a skydive rig. It, it's, a, it's an important difference, but I am made sure that the handle that I'm grabbing is, in exactly, is exactly in the same place when I base jump and skydive. It, it, so whenever I stand on top of a mountain, it, even though I haven't jumped for a couple of weeks, I feel current because when I can combine skydiving and base jumping so closely, mm -hmm. it's like the routines I do in skydiving becomes the same routines as I do in, in base jumping. Yeah. And if you, if you want to be good at it, you have to jump a lot. Mm -hmm. There is no way around it because if you do something a lot, whether it is, I don't know, like uh, computer engineering or being a teacher or holding presentations or, uh, you know, ski like you were doing mm -hmm. or, or, or base jumping, you have to be there physically and do it a huge yeah. amount. That, that's when you get routines because you learn all the small little details that you want to tweak a little, change a little. You start getting really picky with the small little things like ah, maybe you don't even like those socks. Maybe you want to change them a little bit because it feels a bit odd when you fly because the shoe feels a bit weird. Like You start learning all those small things and uh, the routines just start developing it on it. And if I look back at my, my life in, in skydiving and base jumping, I did way more mistakes uh, between 2000 and 2010 than between 10 and 20. And I would say the difference, if I look at my, my whole life of jumping, 
the last, I would say like five, six, seven years, I've been very much professionalized in, mm. in the way that most of my money I earn from coaching. So I teach the way I would like to do myself. So yeah. I, I spend like, I'm, I have huge amount of gems out of airplanes where I coach or teach others to get good routines, which make me reflect on my own routines. The, the amount, like the quantity of the jumps I do today is maybe as much as 10 times more than what I did in 2006, 7, 8. And yeah. I think the amount of mistakes I do is very much reflected on, you know, how aware I am and, and how current I am. And yeah. if I look at myself being on top of a mountain, it's a very specific checking routine of, of things that are being checked. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not it's not that big though it's not like checking every little seam or anything like that it's i i have control of my gear i check it um i check in with my friends the plan it, it's it's like basically if, if you look like large at it you need to be physically there right? be fit be ready that, that goes to, you know, the endurance capacity to hike up or it goes to the skills you don't, you learn from skydiving. And then it comes down to the equipment, which is to have full control of every single thing about your gear. So you have no gear fair. Like you know that this gear is going to work. And then that helps to be mentally prepared because you feel more calm by, by you know, lowering that gear fair, feeling less exhausted, uh, knowing all the small details. And those mm -hmm. three things brings you to the more tactical plan. Like what exactly am I going to do right here now with my physical, mental and technical abilities mm -hmm. or, or tools. And then that goes into the gear check and the check of everything that is to go with the tactical plan. And it doesn't take very long. It's, it's a couple of minutes and then um, nice. it's no time. Thanks for watching this episode. We really appreciate you supporting Homie and the Dude. Please hit us with the Holy Trinity, like our Facebook page, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and follow us on Instagram. Just search at Homie and the Dude. It all really helps. <laughs> you know, you know it's interesting. You mentioned two things. One was that, well, you mentioned more than that, but one that I really resonated with me was um, this concept of gear and how we need to become comfortable with our gear. And almost we start we start needing certain things, even if it's not the latest thing, it's my thing, right? So like a comfortable, I remember playing basketball. Uh, there was just a, you know, you wanted, if it's a big game, you wanted to wear a certain pair of socks. You wanted to wear, you know, your boots that you had for the game, but also you tie them up in a certain way. There's a the ritualistic thing that's very sort of relatable, I guess across sports, especially it feels like in competitive things or maybe dangerous things. Um, I'm, I'm thinking even like, what movie was it? I think it was well, Troy. Well, dude, I was going to say, even for like skating, like as a skater, I do the exact same thing. Like I have my exact down to what bolts go through my board and hold my trucks to my board. I have specific company, specific type of bolts. I have the specific bearings that I want, the specific bushings that I want, bushing caps, trucks, wheels, grip tape, you know, it, like down to and then that's not even on me then if you're talking about what i'm wearing like clothing i usually wear cargo pants and i have my skate shoes whether they're the big etnies because it's cold and i want to dura like durability or i'm doing board feel so the thinner you know so it, you're totally right there is that like and i 
I've never heard the term gear fear before, but I think that is one of the sickest terms I have ever heard. I think that is like, that's a real thing, dude. Like, and, and do you know what's interesting? I get it with podcast gear. So when we do this podcast, we have all this technical gear set up and don't get me wrong. Me and Tom have done, you know, this is our 33rd podcast now. So we've done this a lot, but techs, tech is unreliable and fails sometimes. So I would say I still have gear fear about some of our tech stuff, but uh, sorry, Tom, but sorry to interrupt. But no, yeah, I was just going to say that's another example of literally needing specific bits of gear that are. Yeah, I mean, and, and for us as well, like when, when it's time to introduce something new to actually make the thing better, we hesitate. We're like, yeah. ah, do we, do we want to test that for this podcast or let's, let's maybe do it as a separate test thing, you know? So even though it's to increase the quality of the production, we're, we're, we're slow to accept it. And the other thing is, Boats, do you remember when you broke your wrist, what, what gear you had that day? Oh, yes. Yeah, I've got, oh, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had just got new deck, new shoes, and, uh, and like new wheels and stuff. And I'd never worn that type of shoe before ever. They, they were not my standard shoe in any way, shape or form. And later that day I broke my wrist. You're totally right. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a, it's a, it might be a coincidence, but also maybe in the back of your head, it just wasn't as comfortable as your usual stuff. Mm. So, yeah. So anyway, the other thing that I thought was interesting is how you, again, this, this concept of de-risking the sport, right? Just doing things, going through the protocol, going through the list, right? And if you go through the list well enough, then you start removing aspects of failure. And I, I know, I remember my dad who was um, really into guns. So I'm from America, my dad has guns. And he just drilled into me, if you are going to hold a gun, you need how, to know how to make that gun safe. Yeah. And that was more important to him than us going to the gun range and practicing the gun. He was like, you're going to go through a series of exercises over and over and over again, how to make the gun safe, how to make sure there is nothing in the gun that will make it discharge accidentally. Yeah. So that you start removing accidental failure from the equation. It sounds like it's the same thing with, you know, with our super, super high risk sport. Like again, from us as laymen, <laughs> we just look at it and we're like, Oh my God, like one little thing. And we, you know, you've seen the footage, you, you've produced the footage of some of the amazing, it seems like very, very close to, to hard landscape, just people like going down uh, a mountainside or something like that, or through different, you know, natural obstacles. It just blows your mind. Um, so that's, that's really interesting. The other thing that you said that I just want to ask you about. You said six, seven, or 800 times a year. So that comes out to like, what, an average of two or three times a day. So are you doing like 10, maybe 10 jumps a day on certain days that you're out? Um, now, you, when I say that number, that's uh, that's the number I have from from skydiving. Okay. Maybe, or... or I mean, you, you can look at three different numbers. One is how many skydives do you do jumping on airplanes? Another is how many base jumps do you do? Or, okay. or you can look at the total. I quite often look at the total because I don't necessarily separate too much between skydiving and base jumping when it comes to wingsuit because it, the, the airplane or the mountain or helicopter or balloon or whatever you jump out of it's just like a, a launch point to fly a wingsuit. But when I skydive, 
I do, I would say between five and 10 skydives a, a day. Yeah. Normally like six, seven jumps a day would, would be the normal amount. And uh, when I go base jumping up here, where, where I live, we have, a, we have a cable car. And a normal day here would actually be five, six base jumps a day. But th that's only at one place. It's only at this cable car where you can go several times. Mm -hmm. While if I need a hike, it's only one. That, that would be one jump, maybe two a day. But that's only if it's like midsummer, long days. It's a very like, particularly good part of, of the season. So yeah. one example is I'm, I came back from Portugal in late December and uh, I spent all November and half of December. So six weeks. And in six weeks, I did, I think it was about 130 skydives. Wow. And, and the, but, but it depends a little bit on, so, so the first half of that period, I think me and, me and my two friends there, we did, I think it was almost 100 jumps but then the second half we did like 20 30 because of bad weather and weather is really important in this game so you you may be able to do 10 jumps in a day of skydiving or for that matter base jumping but through a whole season i would say 30 percent of those days you're just looking at low clouds or pissing rain so you have to put aside a huge amount of time and then the average might end up being a couple of jumps a day gotcha. and sometimes some days it's like more than 10 other days zero yeah gotcha and i'm thinking about the weather thing yeah. like is there a range so you know when you think when you think about you see movies of people that are ready to summit everest and they need to have a certain type of weather to do that because and they need to start at a certain time during the day and all of that to make sure that they don't get caught so particularly with wind, I guess, and maybe with, with different um, elements of dryness of air or different um, elements of how, um, what would you call it? The, the ability to, for, for elevation thermals. to change. Yeah. Thermals and that type of thing. Yeah. Is there, is there a window, a sweet spot or actually a no-go zone that, that you have, or is it a, an industry thing? And are there some people that push that? And, you know, they're like, look, I've been waiting to jump all flipping week i've been you know at my desk and it's five miles an hour more than i would like it to be fuck it let's do it you know and that brings an additional rat additional risk is there is there an element of that i think i think it's like the answer must be yes to everything you said there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because i'm sure there are some weirdos on a skateboard that would choose to get a, a bird ramp on on pissing rain but 99% wouldn't because you're just gonna you know you're not gonna skate well and you're not just gonna crash and the same would probably go for some street skating as well or when it comes to basketball whatever it is or, or skiing back in you know in childhood Jackson Hole like there are shitty conditions and there are good conditions and there are people that would ski no matter what and mm -hmm. we, we do have a little bit of the same in in uh, wings of base jumping as well so some people are really pushy and they're willing to jump in the most horrendous conditions. But there is also more or less like an industry standard, I would say. And the industry standard is you have to have visibility, which means when you stand on top, you have to see the landing area. Where you have to, you know, it can't be like a big ass cloud layer that you can't see anything through. You don't want to fly blind. 
again, mm. there are exceptions. There are people that would, you know, push that limit. And mm. uh, when it comes to win, you can have some win, but not a lot. And when I say not a lot, I mean, if you're standing on the exit point and you feel uncomfortable just standing there because the, the gusts of the wind is kind of shaking you out of balance while you stand in the wingsuit, it's probably time to hike down again. Yeah. And then, of course, it's local differences here and there. Like, for example, when I go up to my local exit point here, I know that mountain so well. And I've jumped it on so many different conditions. And I have a way higher acceptance of wind, whether it's thermals or more laminar high winds, than I would anywhere else. And okay. if I go to the States or I go to the Alps and I'm finding myself in a place completely unfamiliar with the local conditions, I would just listen to some locals. I would look at them and ask them, what do you think? Because there may be things that I don't know. And that goes back to preparations. It goes, it goes back to uh, decreasing risk. In the second, I don't know. I have no clue what kind of risk I'm taking anymore. It's like, I have to lean on something and that will be local resources. And But back here, I would, I'm willing to jump on pretty shitty conditions. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So that's, you know, I mean, I, I think I, I fully agree with you. It's, it's risk management. Again, it's, it's just, it's knowing your level of skill and what the adages of possible bad weather kind of do. And, you know, and you're right with scale that you, you mentioned that literally I was skateboarding in the rain, no more than uh, like four days ago. It was dry when I went out and halfway through it started spitting it with rain and I was like, well, I'm warmed up and I'm halfway through the tricks that I want to do. And I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to stay out. And don't get me wrong. Like, it's, it's not great for the board, but you know, you, you do just kind of prevail in some of those situations yeah. because you know that maybe what you're doing isn't going to be something that you're likely to hurt yourself on, but there's still that risk. I think, um, you know, it's, it's a really good point. And, and I like the fact that you ask locals, you know, it's, it's something else that again, with skating, I can relate to when you show up to a local park, you know, you talk to the locals, you kind of get to know the people that are there and, uh, and see what they're doing, maybe get some ideas, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I also very much appreciate that. I wanted to ask you a, an interesting question about the filming of it, because nowadays in the 20th century, you know, back, back in the day, I'm sure you could turn someone and be like, you know, uh, part of VKB and be like, you know, yo, I just jumped down this mountain and wingsuited and it went really good. And that person would be like, cool, that's amazing. I'm really proud of you. Nowadays, though, people are like, if it's not on video, it didn't happen. I don't believe you. Like, show me some evidence kind of thing. And so wingsuiting is obviously a very hard to capture sport. You guys are traveling, you know, up to 100 miles, 150, 160 miles per hour, 200 kilometers per hour, you know, you guys are bombing it. So I know that you use a second wingsuit or as your cameraman. Um, how much of what they're doing in their style of flying is different to what you're doing as the person who's being recorded and like getting close to the terrain in that? Are they having to like angle themselves in a way? Is the camera set up facing you or is it just a head mounted camera and they're having to be like, you know, as they're like kind of going down looking at you. You know, one thing to say about filming is you always want the best wingsuiter to be the cameraman. 
if, if you if you want to succeed in the best possible setup with two people, you always put a stronger swan to film. Mm-hmm. And the setup is like this. So whether you are two people together or three or four or 10, you always have to have one leader, like mm-hmm. one person that is kind of leading the troops all the way mm-hmm. home to, to yeah. where you're going to open your parachute. And everyone else is flying relative to that leader. So they don't care about whether that guy is actually flying them home. They just care about flying relative to that person. So they're just kind of shadowing that person. Mm-hmm. Just like if you, if you look at um, an F-16 larger formation and you know, moving around, they, they call them wingmen or, you know, where they, they kind of set themselves up in fixed formations. And there's always one airplane that is leading the line and then everyone else is flying relative to it. So if, if I'm filming someone, I'm, I'm basically, in the second they start counting down to jump, I only look at them. I don't even look down where I'm jumping. I, I don't care. I, I just know it's wide open. I don't need to look down anyway. So I just look at the person that is 90 degrees to the side of me. And um, if I'm really serious, I actually have this like aim point. It's, uh, it's a bit similar to an aim point on a gun or a weapon. Mm-hmm. So whatever I'm looking at through this like circles of, of like an aim system is what is centered in the frame of the camera. Wow. So That's I'm just sick. looking straight at the person I'm filming. I know mm-hmm. that them, they're centered because of this aim point system. And uh, because that's correlated with how the, the camera is set up on my helmet. And uh, well, and, and then because of that, I just know exactly whether they are in the frame or not. It also yeah. makes me able to work on composition. So I can, for example, put them really high up in the, in the picture in the beginning. So I can kind of reveal the ground and I, you know, I can kind of like tell the story a little bit better in, in the beginning. And um, it, it's... Uh, like if you want to be a, a really good cameraman, it's all about reflecting on what kind of story do you want to tell? Course, like from yeah. the second someone jumps out until you're done with the, the, the camera job, you have to reflect on how is this story going to be revealed? How do I want to tell the story of this exit? How do I want to tell the story of flying towards a line? How do I want to tell the story as they fly on? And, and think about what is going to be the background and what is beautiful and how is this going to work together. And those thoughts need to come together with the plan of the leader of the jump and, of course, the safety of yourself. So, for example, if they are doing a left-hand turn close to the terrain, you can't be on the left-hand side of them because that's very likely going to kill you because you're not looking at where you're going. You just look at the leader. So you have to constantly plan on what kind of line are they going to fly? And then where are you going to put yourself to be safe and fully focus on filming them? And there's been a couple of situations in history where you've had highly professional, like super, super skilled cameramen that pretty much do this for a living, that come to the person they're going to film, the object they're going to film, and ask them, shake my hand, I just want to shake your hand and make you know that my life is in your hands right now. Wow. And then you go jump. And it's because the cameraman is not even going to know if he will die, if, if mm-hmm. the, the mistake is done by the leader. Like if they fly into a wall, the cameraman isn't even going to notice it happening. They're just going to look at the 
the person next to them or the person they're filming. And then in the second it happens, it's too late. And we've actually had, I would say three, four accidents in history where cameramen have died, where, and those accidents have been the only accidents we can see in the history of base jumping where it wasn't the fault of the jumper that died. Like mm. they didn't do any wrongs being like yeah. dying in base jumping. It was actually the wrongs of someone else. Those situations are very rare, but it's super scary. Like when, when you're filming and I prefer to film people I know, like to film people I truly know and truly trust. But sometimes I'm, you know, I'm getting paid really well to go film with someone <laughs> I don't really know that well. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. I need some money. And, <laughs> uh, and I've definitely been in free fall. Yeah. Feeling uncomfortable because I don't fully trust the person I'm, I'm filming. And when I land, I look at the footage, the footage is shit. Right. Like I've done a terrible job and I know exactly why it's because I don't trust the person I'm filming. So I'm spending like half my brain filming them and half my brain making sure that I won't die if something wrong, something bad is happening. Yeah. And it just makes me a shitty cameraman. And, and that's the, the life of, of filming someone. It's like, um, it's like an extra mental task in fearful. It's, it's hard to explain, but I can say, and I can assure everyone that it's, way more mentally hard than be the leader like to just look ahead and the whole world is in front of you no one else is in your way you just like fly that cruise line down that's all you do like to be next to a person and not even look at where you're going while you can kind of blurry see in the background terrain just (laughs) passing by and you kind of like semi guess where you are in the line it's like it's like a whole different ballgame Dude dude, 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 first of all, dude, let's just stop right there. Like, the sport already is incredibly, like, insanely difficult. Now you're going to introduce that I'm not going to actually see where I'm going because I'm looking this way to film the dude next to me or just slightly in front of me. That, that's just, like, infinite. Like, you don't have to, like, qualify it by, like, saying, trust me, this is more difficult. I get it. Like, I get it 100%. That's, and, and when you say it's, like, uh nerve-wracking or all of that i just don't even understand it like i literally don't understand how you could be going 100 miles an hour like this concentrating on that dude while also still holding your frame sort of mimicking what they're doing but not actually being able to use your vision to help with the skill of flying that is a nut a whole other level that's crazy so that's some that's some like sixth sense like like an un- unbelievable kind of notch. Do you know I, I I was thinking while you're saying that, Espen, and obviously at the speed at which you guys are currently flying, um, and likelihood is that with as technology gets better and whatnot, you guys will be flying faster and for longer and things like that. Um, you know, with you know what whatever is being invented and created for 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 the, the technology at the moment. Um, but I imagine as well, at some point, these first-person drones, I'm not sure if you've seen the FPV drone footage that's starting to like really make a big movement um, on uh, when those drones can fly as fast as you guys, that will be insane because then it removes the whole need of, you know, that, that person kind of, that additional person risking their, their life. But I, I, I was just thinking, you know, that's, it's amazing that uh, and again, you know, I, I can relate to it with skateboarding again, because with your filmer, you make a relationship with your filmer and you ask professional skateboarders, they will only film with certain filmers and 
They won't film with other people because of the motivation that that person provides them with, the support, the whatever it may be. And I think in some ways also it's the relationship, it's the bond. And, you know, you said you do it with your friends, you do it with the people that you trust. And it's because in those moments, you know, you give yourself, and like you said, you shake that person's hand, you give yourself to that entire moment and that entire kind of second. And you go, I'm relinquishing all care about me, myself and my enjoyment of this moment so that I can capture this beautiful thing uh, for you, which I think one is super selfless, two, an incredible thing to do, and three, just an unbelievable, like, you, you got to be, you got to be a certain, you got to be a, a certain kind of brave to, 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 to do that for a buddy, you know, and I, I think that's, I almost, I almost respect that a little bit, I, I don't want to say more than being the leader, but I respect the commitment from the, from the filmmaker. That, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Like, I, I was also thinking when you were saying that, because there's, so I'll give you a couple examples of what I'm going to call rogue uh, weather conditions. So um, one example of rogue weather conditions is like you see surfers, and what's the, what's the is it bonsai in, in um in Hawaii, that every now and again, or even like it's out in Spain, I think out beyond them, um, like out Bonsai's in Australia. Bonsai's Australia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's there's a pipeline somewhere. And <laughs> Mavericks. No, Mavericks. Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but you know, every now and again, you'll get a wave that is like, you know, multiples of the others that just kind of comes out of nowhere. And the other one, more pertinent to what you guys do, is. Um, we live um, and have views over a, a body of water and we can see the seagulls and some other birds that fly around quite a bit. And sometimes you see a bird just flying and it's just messing around or whatever, but you can see it catches a thermal and it just kind of does this or just kind of goes one way or the other way. And it looks like it's riding it kind of, but the thermal was like a pretty substantial thing that it, it sort of took. So when we talk about rogue weather conditions, I guess maybe break it down <laughs> as as the leader and how how you dealt with that and maybe like what is the the roguest thing the thing that when you landed you're like did you what what just happened like i don't even understand what that was um and then also while you were filming because if you're doing this and that happens even more disconcerting but talk about rogue weather conditions if it is even a thing for for um wingsuit it is a thing (laughs) and uh it's definitely a thing here in Norway. We have we have the one weather phenomenon that can truly screw you up in bay jumping. It's this weird valley wind. It doesn't happen often, but it happens really quickly. And uh, you can imagine this beautiful, clear day with you know, blue sky. It's warm. It's comfortable. No wind. Uh, it's really warm. People are out enjoying themselves. Now, what happens is, and I don't, I'm, I'm not a meteorologist, so, so it's not that I can explain this perfect or anything, but it has to do with, you know, really warm weather on the coast and warm, warm air goes up. And then all of a sudden it just happens, this replacement where wind is coming down the valley and it can, it can just go from zero to super strong wind in an instant almost. I've had two jumps in my life where I'm standing on top of the mountain. I'm calling down, even calling down to, to, to the guy on the ground, which is telling me, yeah, the conditions are good. 
And then while I'm gearing up and setting up, the wind is picking up and, and he haven't had, he didn't have the time to call me back or I, I actually jumped off before he managed to get hold of me. And uh, when I was hanging in a canopy, I was basically hanging in a canopy in a, in a hurricane. It was just, everything was just insane. It was probably winds with like 50, 60 kilometers per hour. And my canopy is, if you just fly without touching anything forward, a base canopy, it's like moving in about 15 kilometers per hour. So you can imagine that if, if the wind is 50, no matter what kind of direction you're moving your canopy, you were just going with the wind mm. and it's going fast. Mm. So I just crash really badly like i wasn't crashing hard vertical but i was like coming in like skimming the ground and the the canopy didn't deflate so it just kept on moving me backwards and i was taking up a hill and it was total shit show i didn't get injured but i really screwed up my clothes and i was i was lucky i would say and uh, i've experienced it twice and that's one of those like rogue weather situations and we on one of those situations, one of the one of the jumpers, he he wasn't able to kind of like penetrate the canopy into the, the valley, the main valley. So he kind of got stuck on, on uh, kind of like on the, the edge of the valley. He couldn't get out to where it was supposed to land, and he just kept on going straight down. And he landed in a, in a canyon. It's like seven, seven, eight hundred meters up in the valley side, and uh, had to be rescued by um, by the helicopter. He he just couldn't get out of there. He just and he was really lucky. Yeah, he could have. That could have been a really bad accident. He um yeah, it just it was just out of control, landing in the middle of nowhere up in the valley side, and and that's pure rogue weather. It's weather that appeared to be perfect when we jumped, but all of a sudden turned into basically a storm like a valley storm that's that's <laughs> absolutely crazy <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm getting i'm getting a little sweaty <laughs> I, dude, so, so I'm, I'm sat here going oh you know espen you know crashed on his way home and lost a ski and i was just thinking that i was like did you just lose your ski like do you do you just did you just leave your fucking ski on the mountain i'm like you live a crazy life you're risking shit all the time in this alpine <laughs> like jesus christ but i i i, I do I think that's amazing that you know you that you're battling all this stuff constantly and that it is an ever changing and ever like evolving kind of thing and that you even as someone who has I, I would assume got your 10,000 hours at this point you know you're you're a master of 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 wingsuiting you know I'm sure when that stuff happens it still surprises you it still throws you through a ringer it makes you go back to feeling like you know um, a, a basic, a basic flyer again, because you got to like readjust and you're like, Whoa, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of shakes you a little bit, but I, dude, I, I respect that so much. I respect that you are like, even more that you get back up on the mountain after something like that, that you're like, cool. Yeah. Let's next week, the weather conditions are good. And hopefully we won't have a rogue wind. Let's go for it again, guys. Like that to me is just, just absolutely unbelievable i wanted wanted to ask because obviously with wind rushing past you and stuff it's got to be like really loud unless you're i'm not sure whether your helmet is like muffling any of that i wanted to ask have you ever sky skydived base jumped or wingsuited with music do you do you ever listen to music while you're while you're diving 
Yeah, I'll, I'll test it. Yeah, I've, I've tried to jump with music, and you you need you just need some seriously good airplugs. You know, like a proper setup where it um, you know have some noise cancellation, and uh, mm -hmm. it need to be some kind of rubber system so it really isolates in your air, and preferably also some proper protection on the outside. You can. Mm -hmm. The best is a good skydive helmet because those are solid all the way down the hair. Like those more like protect helmets or something that they're not that good because the, the, the hard plastic is above your ears. Mm -hmm. I tried yeah. it. It's, it's cool. I, in skydiving, I wouldn't do it because I have some audible altitude alarms and there's a lot going on in my air about like what kind of altitude I am in and mm. when to separate from the group, when to open the canopy. It has to do with the emergency system. So, so in skydiving, I wouldn't do it. In base shopping, I, I would say it's totally fine. It's kind of cool uh, if, if that's something you're into. Ultimately, I, I don't do it, but it's... It's not that I don't like it. It's more that I like to be a bit low tech about the whole jumping. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't like to have too much hassle. And it's kind of like, imagine you're standing on exit point and you're standing there with some friends and then it's like, hold on, I need to put on the music. And then you, know, you set up the whole music thing. And then all of a sudden someone starts talking to you because they want to make you alert of that we're about to go or someone is struggling with something. And I'm like, what? And I can't hear them. <laughs> so it's a bit of that hassle with, with all this tech that is making me a little bit less aware a little bit less able to you know truly uh, be in the moment and be right there and i actually i like i like to try and just keep it as simple as possible and hear things as well as i possibly can see things as well as I can like keep things super simple i used to you know, have this like big ass helmets and ski goggles and all this kind of stuff. But then I just went away from it because if I just put on like these super simple uh, skydiver goggles, I can see absolutely everything. And if I keep mm. a simple helmet on where it's actually, it's open where my ears are, I can hear everything perfectly. Yeah. And it makes me, it makes the situation more similar to just everyday life when you're just there like you are now right sitting mm. there with your wide open airs and everything's just normal and i think ultimately in the end that's when we are at our best when we have our senses kind of maximized and we are as close to pure as possible that's yeah. do you know what? i i actually really like that answer as opposed to what i was maybe thinking you were going to say which is like yeah man badass like rock song as i plummet to the earth and it's like amazing like <laughs> i thought you were gonna say something like that but no i actually i actually really like that you know the fact that yeah you're you, you have to have all of your senses attuned to be really really focused and also i can imagine as well with hearing that has something to do with equilibrium and balance as well because just just generally your ears are your part of your like whole balance system so i can imagine that um no, no it's that's like it's, like, it's not 100 percent though like yeah. Back in the days, I used to do big mountain ski comps, and I used to listen to Massive Attack. And seriously, I was tuning up to, to, to the sound as loud as I possibly could. It was like when I was skiing, the only thing I could hear was Massive Attack. Yeah. And uh, for sure, it would be a good idea to, to be able to hear in case of avalanches or whatever, you know, sketchy yeah. situation I could put myself in. But I was so damn nervous and so in need of something to kind of like pick me up, you know, be more yeah. solid in the moment and like, get to the highest level of what I could do that I was just like, nah, 
I just want to listen to some badass music and charge as hard as I possibly can. Nice. That yeah. attitude isn't really what you need in base jumping because it's so damn dangerous already that you probably <laughs> want to calm things down a little. It's like, oh, it's, uh, you don't need to kind of like smack your face and go nuts. Like, yeah. yeah, it's it's it's, it's more about it's more about management of uh, of adrenaline and and nerves. And did you do you have any uh, do you have any like key things that you do to kind of because, you know, obviously fear and adrenaline and things like that, when you master them, when you can harness them, they become weapons of, of pure destruction. You can be, you can be the, one of the most powerful people on the planet if you can master your own fear and your own nerves and whatnot. So um, do you have any tools? Do you meditate? Do you do like a one, two, three, go? Like, do you, like what's, your, what's your kind of method at the top of the mountain? Actually, I haven't done meditation on the top. I tried some meditation last year, and I had a longer period where I was testing it out. My, my girlfriend is uh, more into it, and uh, I liked it. I did, but I'm, I'm a bit like, I'm not that good at just getting routines and then sticking to them if they don't mm. really change something in my life. And yeah. so, so I kind of faded out on it. But back to the question more specifically, so, and, and this is weird because it's, it's almost like meditation, right? It's like to master the, the situation mentally, I have to stay in the moment. Yeah. And that sounds a bit weird because it's, it's almost like this meditation expert that is talking about it. But the way I do it is that I, I think about the things I need to think about. It's mm -hmm. kind of like when, I, when I'm standing on top, I go through the plan. I, I check my gear. I identify... Like if I'm standing on the top and I'm nervous, which is every time, I ad identify what it is that makes me nervous. I go through the plan and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm nervous about the pulling area or I'm nervous about the wind and the landing area. Or I just identify exactly what it is that makes me nervous about the specific task I'm doing. And then I start reflecting on it. I kind of like break things down. I'm like, okay, so what am I going to do? To, cap, like to, to manage the situation better. And then I go through it and I'm like, and if, if the answer is, yeah, okay, cool. Like, this is a good plan. I, I like it. This is going to go well. Then it calms me down and it makes it more rational to <laughs> move on with what I'm going to do. So it's all about like breaking down everything I have around me and just stick to that. I, I, mm. I think that the one thing that is screwing up things for, for people whether it's base jumping or, or maybe skateboarding for that matter, is that they start thinking about the things they're afraid of. So it's like yeah. you're afraid of crashing and hurting yourself. And then you think about how much that's going to hurt and how much that's going to suck. And then you just kind of like get in this cycle of, of you know, bringing it. It's just like downward spiral mm. yeah. instead of thinking more solution-based. Because ultimately when you're standing on an exit point and you're about to jump, it's like you, it's either or, like either you jump and if you, if you jump, you better have a good answer for it. You could better agree with yourself on why you're going to jump off this mountain because there's no way back. And the second you, you lean forward, there is no way back. Yeah. Or, or, or just hike down and uh, yeah, think about the small things, like all the small details, break things down, stay in the moment, stay there, stay focused right there. And I definitely calm down by thinking really constructive about what i'm about to do like very technically specific it's like okay that's how i exit that's how i move on this is how i fly this is where i open this is where i land and i think very specifically at them 
and it calms me down and it makes me more prepared to do what I'm doing. Yeah. So I got, yeah, I wanted to explore something. It's related to meditation a little bit. Um, so when, when you're really and there's different, I guess there's different levels in your meditation practice, but when you do get to that very still present place, it's incredible. And you can be there and you can be very, very in tune to everything. You're all of your senses are completely of open and available. And with, um, with um, wingsuiting, and I guess with any sort of ad adrenaline sport, um, it seems like part of the draw to the sport is to put yourself in a position that it's so extreme that it gets you to almost forces you to be so present that it turns off thoughts, right? That you have, you have to be there or else you're in further danger. And so, and then the, the actual term is adrenaline junkie. So here's the, the, the question is about once you've done something at a certain speed, at a certain height, does the junkie part of it kick in where you're like, and you, let's say you've done that 10 times or 20 times or 30 times. And now you start what you're doing it and you start drifting into thoughts again. And you're thinking about like, not, not quite exactly in the moment. So now what I have to do is I have to get closer to the ground. I have to do a little bit of a tighter turn. I have to do a, a maneuver that just feels a little bit more difficult just to kind of heighten that, that, um, that feeling of being super, super in the moment. Are you battling that at all? Or are you put, have you put that aside? Or was that a younger thing and now you're out of that and you're just like, look, dude, I want to I have a long, happy life. And this is just one part of it. And I don't need this to, to figure out other things in my life. Uh, ah, really interesting okay first of all i am a person that definitely can can drift away you know if i'm sitting in a classroom and in the classroom i think maybe half the time i would think about something not that i want to it's just like it happens and then i just all of a sudden think about football or flying or whatever else and i'm like god damn it i just fell out of it again and then i force myself man so so, so i'm that kind of person i drift away sometimes but what I know is I would claim that I pretty much never in my life drifted away in free fall. Okay. I don't think it has happened. I can't come up with being in free fall and just all of a sudden think about something that is not about that specific moment. And uh, yes, so it's that intense. It's so intense to be in free fall that you just naturally you're there. Um, I think it partially is about the danger you're putting yourself in. And I also think it goes back to what Bode mentioned about 10,000 hours that mm. you may think Bode that I have 10,000 hours, but, but I don't, I, I'm pretty close on skiing actually, but really far away on, on, um, on being in free fall. You mm. know, every time I go to, to, to do a, a day of skydiving at a drop zone, I do maybe at the most, I have 20 minutes in triple in a day. That's at the most, like that pretty much maxed out. If I go to a tunnel, an indoor skydiving center, I could, I have had some days with one hour in triple, but that's very rare. And if you compare that with skateboarding, for example, or, or basketball, Tom, like if you are a person that train really hard from from a young age one hour in a day is not that much like if you want to if you if you want to 
you know, be, be a professional skateboarder or, or basketball player, uh, one hour a day, like seven hours a week is not going to bring you anywhere. Like you need to be at least double, maybe even more, even yeah. younger than 10 years old, you need to be more than that. And we are so far away from that. Uh, I, I think maybe if I put together all the tunnel and the skydives and the base jumps and I put together all those free poles, I, I might end up with 2,000 hours, 1,500 maybe. 1500 mm-hmm. hours maybe even less i'm not sure i haven't actually counted on this but where the where do that put me if you compare me with other sports uh, it puts me as a pretty average musician uh, i wouldn't be particularly good in business um i would definitely not be able to keep up you or anyone skateboarding that have put their life into it um i would have nothing to do even in the first top four divisions in basketball so mm-hmm. If you look at our sport and like and compare it with larger global sports where people have the ability to put in huge amounts of training from a young age, we suck, man. Like we we are really shit at what we do. Like even the best wingsters in the world truly suck, and we have no idea how good we could potentially be. We mm. maybe we will never figure out. And I think that's partially why we're so in a moment when we do things, no matter what, because we are that good at it. So even though I do this, like, for example, like give example today. So I'm probably going to do a couple of jumps tomorrow because Saturday the cable car is open. I'm probably going to go skiing a little bit first. This is the first time the cable car has been open since uh, 31st of uh, December. So I haven't actually been in free fall for the last, well, I did jump on the 2nd of January. So but anyways, it's like almost two weeks since mm-hmm. the last time I jumped. Two weeks. Yeah. Imagine if you are a pro skateboarder and you haven't done a single, you haven't touched a board for two weeks. That's not a time to truly perform well. You, yeah. You're not current. You kind of lost it. You need at least a couple of days to get into the sport again. Yeah. And most skydivers and, and base jumpers, they experience this constantly through their whole career that they have those couple of weeks without it. So you never manage to jump enough. And ultimately when you're there, you feel fair because you're not that well prepared no matter how hard you work for it you're, you're still not up to the level of high level sports yeah, yeah that sure. was a long That's, answer but no no dude that is the most possibly in, in my opinion one of the most interesting things i think that you've I said agree. I, I agree. The, the fact that you compare yourself to you know the fact that you, you said an average musician you know and, and things like that that's crazy dude you i mean i worth me and tom are I'm a 22-year-old, Tom's a 50-year-old, we're both average people. We're sat on a Zoom call with the world champion wingsuiter and we're, we're in awe and like in and honored to be within your, within your presence. I mean, if, if we were doing this in person within the breathing room of you, do you know what I mean? We're, we're an, it's, it's an honor for us to be here with you. So for you to put yourself in that esteem is amazing to me. That's, in, that's such an interesting philosophy and mental psychology and when you when you, and your comparison is right when you do put it like that and you look at it like that i understand exactly what you're saying it makes perfect sense but also i then go you know does lebron james strap him in a <laughs> strap a parachute to his back and chuck him out of a plane and <laughs> you know um but it, it, it's it's very interesting that you say it. and you're you're not wrong dude you know People who are professionals, you know, you look at the Michael Jordans, the Rodney Mullins in skateboarding, the, you know, Habib um, in MMAs, the Usain Bolts in running and whatnot. 
they don't spend one hour a day. They don't spend two hours a day. They spend from the moment that they wake up, they put their equipment on and they're out and they're doing that all day. And, and you're totally right for me. Like actually at the moment, this has possibly been one of the most like painful sections of my life in terms of doing skateboarding, because I've been in the UK where I can skateboard. It's been over summer. It was good weather and stuff, but because of the lockdowns and the coronavirus, I've not been able to get out as much. And so, and not to mention any time that I do get out, uh, it's been like once or twice that I've injured myself. So I've had like a bad ankle and a bad shoulder and it's meant that I've then put distance between it. So I think I skated for the first time in like three months, four days ago. And it was like, it was hard. Like I was rusty. I felt awful. And, you know, it's something where if you're not doing it regularly, I know what you mean with that whole, you step on and it's, it's not that you're not comfortable, but for some reason your legs are shaky and you're like, why aren't my muscles like locking in like they usually do? After 20 minutes, though, they're like, oh, I know what we're doing. I'm back. I, I get what we're doing. But it's that first 20 minutes of being like, I have no clue what's going on. So I, the fact that, and I've never thought about the fact that- no, I haven't either. Skydivers are doing that in such small pockets. You do so many, and then you take time off, or you do X amount of this. And not to mention, when you guys crash, I'm sure the injuries are- not a twisted ankle or a sprained wrist. I'm sure it's prolific injuries that are putting you out for months, years, you know, in, in some cases. So it's not like when you take an injury, like for me, if I fall over skating and, you know, I, I twist something or I pull something, you know, I can take a week off, put some CBD cream on it, stretch it every day and be back on the board. You know, it, it's not like that. So dude, that's crazy. I've never, I've never even conceivably thought of wingsuiting or skydiving or base jumping in that in that kind of headspace at all tom what about you yeah i, I think it's a really interesting point i mean there's, there's there was two things that came to mind with if you talk about lebron or habib or those guys i think what what you're talking about espen is the actual real it's almost like game time right so lebron oh, he, he probably does have close to 10,000 hours of and i don't know how many hours he has of nba game time but it's a lot let's say it's a lot but it's so your game time is when you, you know, when you drop, right? But the, all the rest of the stuff that leads up to it is part of your sport, right? And, then, and there's also aspects of your sport that are, you know, training or whatever things that you need to do to supplement the day that you're going to be doing your thing. So I think there are two different formulas for the 10,000 hours. One is the actual game time formula. So Khabib doesn't have anyone near 10,000 hours of, of actually in the octagon for a match. He's fought 29 times competitively, but he has, clearly has 10,000 hours of training for that. And to some version and some working on technique, working on uh, his physical, working on his mental, all of that stuff. So I think to some degree, I I, you, know, you, you unquestionably have thousands and thousands of hours of preparation understanding um, of living it of, of living, living of living, living the culture as well yeah yeah but also also you know the, one of the more important things about your sport though is the preparation right so that i think that's even more important than many other sports so if you get the preparation wrong in your sport it has it has lethal consequences if you get the preparation wrong in basketball I mean, what's, you know, if you don't tie your shoe right, what you maybe sprain your ankle. I mean, if you, if you don't get your, your equipment right in wingsuiting or in skydiving, you know, it's, it's fatal at times. So yeah, it, it is, a, it is a good point. 
Um, and but the other thing that you mentioned is that the um, the wind tunnel now has has kind of um, and the wind tunnels have gotten a lot better. I remember doing a wind tunnel in Las Vegas where where I grew up, and it was um, <laughs> it, so the suit was was kind of janky, and it, I think they said it was like a DC ten jet engine underneath that had like a metal yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a metal like mesh grate on below it, and then it had padding, you know. Um, yeah, I've actually been there. I was. I tried that tunnel. It's, have you tried uh, that? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I'm in there, and I just get thrown off to the side because I didn't know what the hell I was doing and all that. But I know that 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 technology has gotten better, where you can actually train. You can't replicate it, of course, because you can't you can't assimilate that kind of speed and all of the different variables and factors. But at least you can you can work on stuff, right? You can work on balance. You can work on understanding the suit a little bit more and movements and and a little bit more subtleties on things. So um, maybe talk about the technology of not just practice things like um, wind tunnel uh, practice, but also I've asked this about uh, another sport that we had someone that was basically a world champion on as well. Talk about the technology of windsuit um, when you first came in, where it is now and where you'd love it to be in five years. Like, yeah. is, there, is there like something that you can picture that can make you fly legit like a you know like a bird with very low risk. Uh, and do, do you know what? I, I I was gonna I was literally that was gonna be my next question. What is your like innovative step? Because I know that you were part of that like first group, the VKB group that really developed the wingsuit in of itself and was working out the physics technology behind it. So yeah, that please please yeah <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so I, I have to say before I talk about it that. I, I've always been more the the doer, the, the guy that just hiked up and tried out things than sitting in a garage, you know, with a sewing machine. So I had friends that was really good at developing gear, equipment, using different materials and putting things together and the exceptionally smart engineers. And um, I, I wasn't that good at that part, but I just loved trying out new things. So I was a bit of a test dummy. So knowing that, so, so, so just know that I'm not the perfect person to ask about the more technological steps that have been taken at each time. But if you, if you look a little bit bigger at it, in the beginning, and now we're talking about around 2000, mm. the suits were way smaller than they are today. It was almost like you had a little wing between each arm and one in between your legs. And I remember, it, I remember like, that. It was just a little thing right here, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah. it's like the, the leg wing barely reached below the knees. So yeah. it was very small. And of course, that, that's like today we, we are wearing the maxed out size. You can possibly have a material spreading your arms and legs. So that in itself is a huge difference. But there are many more differences. Back in the beginning, it was almost like people put on a tight classic skydive suit, like this one piece jumpsuit that was pretty tight. And then they put some material in between your arms and legs. And mm -hmm. then in time, people started refining this concept. People started to you know, change the small things. And one of the things that started to get changed was the ability to put more air pressure inside the wings. So they changed small details such as making airlock systems. So when the air, like, when the suit was properly inflated, it, 
it, like a flap climbed down and it actually closed in the air and it was almost like it would let air come in but not out and it made the whole suit more stable and other things was they were working like I was working on it and many people working on it the idea of having a more clean profile on the wing the leading edge the, the leading edge of your arm which is key for aerodynamics like if you if you want to have an airplane fly well you need to make the leading edge of each wing everything very smooth it has to do with airflow it has to do with how how it works between drag and lift it has to do with the ability to be agile move around and more and more what we know from from the story from the beginning is we've had a few really big jumps in in uh, changes in constructions yeah. and i would say that the first jump that we saw was when someone made a suit that had a leg wing that went all the way down to the to the feet yeah. that was a massive change because because of the long leg wing it almost like naturally pushed people more into the wind and let's say the wind is coming from this direction and we used to fly like this. And the second you start flying more into the wind, you create way less drag. It goes faster, increases the lift. And then at that point, suits start to be quite speedy. They were going much faster. And that happened in the late 2000s. And then in the early 2010s, I think it was like 2010, 11, 12, around there, a big suit came on the market. And a lot of people call it the called it the carpet suit because and they, a lot of people found it looking really dumb the the, yeah. the people looked at the earlier suit with smaller wings uh, as more like a fighter jet it looked cooler it looked more like more stylish and people found with the big ass suits looking really dumb but when people realized they were flying way further way longer and you know faster everything was better with them the the idea of big suits turned into they were looking good after all, and because they were acting good. And that was the two major changes. First, the, the long leg wing, the, the getting people more into the relative wind. And then the last one was the big wing. And then outside that, every single step along the way have been small steps. It's, it's people, manufacturers mainly, that are sitting there changing small, small things. It's like they, for example, put the wings into a horizontal research wind tunnel at the university and they look at how the, the air is moving over it and then they try out to change the leading end a little bit like this, a little bit like this, and they do all these small changes, change the material maybe. And then all like, most of the manufacturers are coming out with a new model every year. Like once a year, a new model is coming out, just like in clothing business or maybe even skateboarding, it can be anything. Mm -hmm. And so basically they're using one year on R&D, like changing small things, small things, small things, and then boom, they come with a new model. And then it moves yeah. on, moves on. And then it seems that we have a tendency of forgetting that all those changes are just very small. It's like these small little tweaks that I do every year. And sometimes even a wrong one and then go back again to what they had previously. And, but, but when we are looking at the suit today in 2021, and we, for example, if you look three, four years back, it's like a Eureka. It's like, wow, the suit is completely changed. It's like, mm. we have way better suits today than we, we had just mm. a couple of years ago. And yeah. we have a tendency of thinking that 
And I know the suits are so good that they're not going to change a lot the next, next couple of years. It's just going to calm down now. And, and it seems like everybody has been thinking this since the very beginning, that nobody really believes in innovation or, or a big change. But if, if history is true, like if what has happened the last 20 years is continuing, which is more likely than, than it's not, we are just going to see a continuous change and improvement of people's skills, the gear we're wearing, and the understanding of the sport as a whole. And every now and then, for, for, for people that are totally into the sport, we're not very rarely being surprised it's not like you're you're doing if you're really into the sport it's not like you cruise around and all of a sudden someone is someone is doing something completely out of the blue new and way cooler but yeah. where people aren't that into it i think they can expect surprises to come even this year and maybe next year like there will come things in 2021 videos coming out where people are just like whoa 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 what just happened there that is insane yeah is landing in wings in a very elegant way all of a sudden yeah i want i want to ask so one who, who's your who's your company what what wingsuit do you rep are you allowed to say the company that you rep yeah so it. i'm using a, a suit or or I'm, I'm part of a company or not part of it i'm part of a group of a team for a company called squirrel as squirrel. the squirrel okay. it's an american company based up in seattle uh, nice. uh, up in Washington, in the States, and they are the the biggest company in the world in terms of how much they sell, uh, the amount of different suits they have, and the amount of gear. They are putting a lot of resources into R and D, but you can probably say the same about other brands as well. You, you yeah. in the world right now, you have, I would say, you have three major brands. You have one European-based, one Florida-based, and one Washington in the States. So two in, two in the States and one in, in Europe. And they're, they're, they're all making good suits. They're all working their ass off to, to make the next big thing and uh, mm. you know, change things for the better. And, yeah. uh, but I, so, personally, I, I seriously like the, the company I'm with. It's, um, I think it's especially because they're making really agile suits, suits that they can gain a lot of altitude they they're really snappy and fast and they're really playful to fly with in whatever you do and um and i am yeah it, nice. it's the preferred place to be for me yeah that's that's super cool man like i i think uh, and i do you know what gaining altitude was what i was about to talk about next as yeah. as as a as a whole topic because innovation and flying is really only headed in one direction, which is propulsion. I, I, I guess would be would be the honest answer. Propulsion is kind of where we're going. You know, there's I know there's a company called Gravity who have made like almost like an Iron Man kind of system with a thruster on your back and two on your arms that you can like float around with. Um, there was also the company that made that like a wing like pack that someone wore with jets on the back and stuff. And so. Um, you just mentioned a second ago that some wingsuits will, I assume, allow you to dive bomb, pick up speed, and then alter your course and then gain altitude based off of, um, you know, uh, thrust and, uh, and air resistance and stuff. But I want to ask, if propulsion does get added to wingsuiting, if some sort of thrust, if some sort of like uh, hover, whatever system is put in, is that something that you're interested in or is the free fall 
Like, is the free fall so good that wingsuiting will always be without propulsion, do you think? Wow, that's a very interesting question. So, so this is something I never expressed publicly and uh, uh, whether I would do it or not. And uh, it, it's partially because I have several very good friends that are th themselves working on propulsion systems. Um, mm. I, I know several of the people on the, what is called the Jetman project, but it's a Dubai-based uh, big money project where they're putting jet engines and then a wing on where they can fly in insane speeds. Yeah. And um, this is something that I've been thinking about like, because this is quite obvious, extraordinary and special mm -hmm. and all of that. I personally, I'm, I'm very negative to it. And uh, the, the reason I'm negative to it is if you look at base jumping and uh, like jumping a wingsuit in nature, we are people like humans um, with, with wings, like material that is making us able to jump off and fly. And we are in the environment of, of birds, of, of nature, and we're kind of playing on the same rules as them. You know, we, we don't have an engine, they don't have an engine. We are, we, the, the, whatever noise we make is just breaking the wind. That's the only noise we really make. Just like birds are also, you can hear them when they zoom by. Yeah. By putting engines in that environment, you're all of a sudden changing the rules of the whole system. You, you separate yourself from all other animals out in nature with whatever consequence that I had of noise, uh, scaring them. Um, and uh, I don't think the pollution is gonna like actually be an issue. It's not a lot of people ever put yeah. uh, propulsion engines on the wingsuit and jump off mountains. So it's not, it's not really a big climate issue, but it's like, it's about respecting the, the time we live in. It's about uh, respecting nature and uh, make less of a footstep in nature or whatever you do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the pure part of, of hiking a mountain and jumping off. I, I really enjoy that feeling. And I, I don't think we will ever see a person put propulsion engine on skis and just zoom up Mount Everest. And uh, it, it's partially, it's like, it's not acceptable in the climate community. It would be thrown upon. Yeah. People would be like, what are you doing, dude? Like, this is climbing. Get out of here. Go and find yourself a race course or whatever, but this is nature. And yeah. I think that that attitude should be applied into our own community as well. We, we should uh, think really seriously about how we are perceived and how we would like to be perceived and, and how we, you know, in a deeper sense, our values and, and how we reflect our sports and how that fits into the time we live and uh, mm -hmm. the sport we do. Now, there is another answer to this though, and that, that's a drop zone, a skydive center. Because when you go skydiving, you're in this like kind of closed area where it's like, it, it kind of lies in a name, a drop zone. So it's a zone where you can jump out of airplanes, fall down and mm -hmm. land at a specific landing area. And you have heaps of people there, airplanes going up and down, you know, and, and it's like a noisy airport environment. Yeah. and. I am way less um, negative thoughts about using propulsion systems in a skydive environment. But if people jump out of airplane and then use that engine to fly into nature and then start rocking around there, then I'm negative again.
Okay. Yeah. So you know what? It's, yeah, it's a long answer, but uh, I'm like, wow. I like the innovation of it, but I'm not sure if I'm comfortable about where this is going, especially when it comes to treating nature. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's crazy. I was expecting you to have negative opinion. I, I actually was expecting you to be negative about it, being like, no, like tradition, like falling in style is the only <laughs> way. Like, no flying, falling is the way. Um, but no, I think I, I, would, I never expected you to say that the nature, the effects that the engines would have on nature. I, mm. I genuinely never expected you to say that, and I think it's such a strong point because at the end of the day noise and 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 you're right especially and again i think if you spoke to someone who does maybe wingsuiting or base jumping from a lot more urban environments i reckon they would probably have a different opinion to you as someone who has grown up in an alpine area who loves the like alpine forest the mountainside and obviously with all of that and you know like when i grew up in america there's the bears there's the deer, the elk, you know, there's all the different types of wildlife and flora and fauna that also can be affected. You know, the other thing you're thinking about is you jump off a mountain and you take off with some thrust. That thrust is going to scorch whatever tiny piece of ground that you just jumped off of, you know. So yeah. I, I get what you're saying, you know, it, it is actually going to be an effect to nature. And um, again, something that I hadn't thought about. I, I, I would have assumed you would have been negative about the uh, the whole flying thing, but no, that's that's super interesting as well. Nature, uh, the effect on nature, and I, I like as well that as a as someone who is competing in a sport that is very nature based, it's cool that you're thinking about that because again, there's other nature based sports like there's some whitewater rafting, there's some stuff like that that people do where they're not always considering nature where things get like left behind there's debris or you know stuff like that happens and you it's not always considered in some of those sports so i appreciate that you as someone who is out there doing it is doing that that's pretty cool hey aspen yeah do you have uh, a video that you could recommend that we could queue up that um could be representative of something that you're i don't know something you're proud of or something you'd like to show to to your supporters or to people that aren't as aware of of the sport one video <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh it could be more than one but like yeah let's 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 start with one and then i have a question for you maybe while Bodie's queuing it up do you, do you have one that you would that uh, you yeah. would recommend yeah uh yes it's it's a it's a video it, I, I think one of the nicest videos people can see that really brings you into the, the challenge and the, the you know the, the big step it actually is to, to jump off a mountain with a wingsuit is um, it's a movie called Point of No Return by Miguel Tan. And I believe you can both find it on YouTube and on Vimeo. And it's a video or a short documentary, short movie about my girlfriend's very first wingsuit base jump. Oh, wow. And uh, Miguel Tam is a really quite amazing um, director and, and movie maker. And he made this like really short piece that has been very popular. It's been seen on many different film festivals around the world. And it's very popular online as well. 
all like even though it's not that spectacular it's not like this crazy crazy flying happening uh, there there isn't good flying in it but it's about how it's built up like the fear the the management of, of risk and the, the the big choice it is like to, to actually step off and because she knows as everybody else knows is that in the second you lean forward and and you can't change your mind that's like a tipping point that is so scary. It's horribly scary. Yeah. It's like this moment that a friend of mine talked about as too late to turn, but too early to panic. But it's weird mm. because your feet are still on the ground, but you're leaning too much forward. So you, you have to go. There's no choice, you know, turning back. And uh, that, that movie is all about that and really enlightens why this sport is so interesting and why it's so scary. Okay. I've got it loaded. I can, uh, I can screenshot that one. Before you do, let me just ask this wacky question. <laughs> um, Careful, Tom. Okay, so you know how there's some animals, right? That uh, I, I'm picturing dolphins that sometimes will follow a boat, or like if you're if you're you know scuba diving or something like that, you'll have some fish that mess around with you and all of that. Have you ever had? I don't even know if this is even a thing. Have you ever had an experience where you're up there, you're bombing it, and you look over? And there's like, I don't know, a falcon or something that's just like looking over at you and, <laughs> and or like just any any interaction with uh, with birds up in the sky that you're um, surprised by, I guess. I have personally never had an experience in free fall or under canopy, but th there has been some. And uh, what we know is that we, we, we fly too fast. They, they, I don't think the birds would be particularly interested flying, like maxing out their flying speed so hard to, to keep up with us. They, we, we might appear a bit scary, I think, or they, they wouldn't really find an interest in us. But when we're hanging in a canopy, everything is going slower. And there are numerous videos out there of, uh, of different kinds of birds that are flying up to the people that are under a paraglider or, or a skydive canopy or base canopy where they come up and they're really curious and they're kind of looking at you and they're like wondering what's going on here? What kind of flying thing are you? Mm. And uh, those videos are quite fun to watch because the, the, for the person that is piloting the canopy, it's, a, it's an amazing nature experience. Uh, it doesn't happen often. And uh, it's, it's like um, being leveled with a bird for a little short moment, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's quite a unique moment. I've, yeah. I've personally had close encounters with birds in the base jumping environment uh, a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, one of the more funny ones was I was going to check out an exit point. So I was like climbing down in a really steep wall and um, I wasn't wearing a rope, but I was taking it very cautious. And then I was dropping a couple of like small rocks off the wall to, to see how vertical it was and how high the wall was. It's, it's a normal, a bit old school, but it, we used to do it that way back in the days. And then all of a sudden, this, this eagle is coming with both the claws towards me, like, towards me, <laughs> straight in my face. And seriously, I almost fell off. Like I almost died that day because I got so shocked, so scared yeah. by this attacking eagle that I was just like <laughs> losing my grip and I was freaking out. And it stopped like, a couple of meters away from me, it just moved away. And I believe it was just trying to scare me away. It probably had some little kids over there or I was yeah. definitely threatening its environment and I wasn't aware of, of it being there. I was so shaken, it was horrible. It was gnarly. 
Dude, I, those situations, like I also think, who was it? I think it's um, Alex Honnold that does the free solo climbing. And so he's, he's not tied in at all. But he, every, every now and again, he'll talk about like while he's on a, a, a rock face, he'll encounter like a little mouse or like, you know, a spider or something like that. Dude, think about, <laughs> think about just being, you know, a thousand feet up in the air on a sheer face. And there's this thing that's just popped out that even the smallest, like, so your foot is like hanging yeah. on to a little tiny thing and you've got one finger over here and, you know, you've got your other hand in the chat in the chalk bag. And I don't know, it's just like, there's so much randomness that can disrupt. And that's a good example of just, you know, being up there and there's an animal that comes at you and that fear factor can really like disrupt your whole, um, yeah, it can just shake you a little bit and put you in a position where, you know, bad things can happen, I guess. Yeah. And, and the, a friend of mine, he had a weird situation a couple of years ago where he, he, he jumped out and in the second he jumped off the mountain, there was a, a big eagle just below him. And he was screaming because he didn't know, like, is the bird even going to see me? Because he was definitely on his way to hit the eagle. And the, the eagle reacted and moved away and he passed by. And uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, it, it's not, it's, a, it's like a crazy nature experience, but at the same time, really uncomfortable. And I can easily picture Alex Hong when he's free soloing. And it must be such a trippy experience if there is like a little bird next to you or something, like kind of cruising around because you, you find, he find himself in an environment where the only thing that is keeping him safe is to do every single little move he do, very controlled, like the wall is his safety. If he, if he let go of the wall, he's, he's dead. And then having like a living creature kind of like, yeah, no, I don't need to do that. I can kind of cruise out here. I can be here. Like, woo. <laughs> it must be really trippy. And I'm sure him and many other free solars or, or climbers have experienced that. And uh, this odd experience of this other living creature that don't follow, that don't have the same rules of survival. Yeah. So before you cue this up, oh, sorry. Um, one one more thing. So what you were saying that about the eagle beneath um, your friend, you have some footage. Now I'm, I might be separating two things. So one is where you actually jump out of a plane to land on a rock that you can base jump off of. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so that you get high enough, or just to a place that you can't actually get to from the ground up. Um, so there was that one, and I'm not sure if that's the same one where you have. Uh, a partner of yours that is on it's just on a, like one of those speed um, parachutes I guess mm. and I think he is maneuvering so that he can stand on you as you're I don't know if you saw it boats as, as yeah as, yeah I believe it's called the flying carpet was what I read somewhere. <laughs> it's called the flying carpet and I, I and, and actually in the same article I read that you actually have a nickname Espen called fast dog <laughs> <laughs> This, this article, I don't know what was going on with this article, but it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, dude, you're a big proponent of, like, safety, and I get all that shit. But, bro, look, look man, uh, there's a dude standing on you. You're bombing it, I don't know, let's say 80, 90 miles an hour. You're doing this. Like, talk us through that whole, like, well, whose idea was that? How many drinks did you guys have? Like, when, 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 like talk us through that thing, dude. Because that's crazier than crazy. <laughs> so, so this all comes back to that 
This is actually quite popular in skydiving. I mean, this is some years ago and we were already doing it jumping on airplanes where he was jumping out first, opening his canopy and kind of setting up everything. And this is a tiny little super fast canopy. Yeah. And then when he was ready, I jumped out with my wingsuit and I flew over to him. So what happens is that I need to fly almost as slow as I possibly can. And he fly as fast as he possibly can and then it kind of like matches and we can we can actually fly relative to each other and cruise around one in the canopy and one in wingsuit and it's a really trippy thing because the guy i have next to me he can just land as he is now like he's going to land that way but i'm dying if i land now i i I have to open my parachute first and then land and then we 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 knew that we can fly together. We knew that we can dock, like, you know, have a little handshake or him taking his feet underneath my, my, my backpack, the rig on my back when I fly. Like, we figured out all of that. And we also knew that, okay, we can do this fairly quick if we have the setup right. And, and then it started growing on us. Like, we really wanted to try this out where he was jumping from a helicopter. And instead of me being in the helicopter and waiting for him to set up, he was just going to jump from a high altitude, set everything up, come flying down towards an exit point where I was standing on top of a mountain. And then I was just going to jump off in the right moment and chase him and meet him and see if we can manage to do this. Now, the technical difficulty of doing that is mainly timing because he is coming towards me in 120 30 kilometers per hour while i'm standing dead still on top of a mountain which means that i need to like the time it takes for me exiting until i actually have that kind of speed is five six seven seconds so i had to jump off the mountain before he got to me kind of like recalculate mm-hmm. okay he's coming that means that i need to get off now and then he will catch up with me and then we will reset everything and then the other thing is altitude. So normally when we do it from airplane, we, we jump from, well, in meters, it's about 4,000 meters. Now, the mountains we jump from in Norway is more like 1,500 meters. So it's less than half of the altitude. And mm-hmm. you're in a mountain environment as well. So you have to move away from the mountains. You have to kind of set everything up. And then you have super limited time to, to make this happen. And that goes back to the timing of when I jump out. So... That stunt was all about planning and timing. And if the planning was done well and I was able to time the exit well, the rest would actually come quite easy. It wouldn't okay. be that difficult because then I would buy myself time because we would come back, like we would get together pretty early on after me jumping off the mountain. And, uh, but honestly, we, we, we thought that project would have like a 50-50 chance. And we put aside two days with helicopter, everything like we had super good setup to do it several times and we did it on the first try <laughs> and i remember it was really odd it was almost like this uh anti-climax moment when because we thought it was just gonna okay we, we try once we, we do our best and then we land and we reassess and we learn from it and then i jumped out and it was like oh my god click he just basically <laughs> clicked on me immediately and we were just i was just on intercom with him and we were both just like mind blown and we didn't really know what to say and it was just like well what happened now we, we, we just did it <laughs> and uh, when you landed when you landed there was like you guys were so jacked like you were jumping up and like you were really really excited because uh, i guess for the first time um 
That's yeah. amazing. So, so when you had him on you, does that change your like the the technical flying, or was he lightly on you? Because it looked like he was like his legs were like pretty much set on you. I have fully like it's funny because in the second his legs are locked underneath my my backpack, the the, the rig, I lose all ability to control flying. Is like I can't turn, I can't do anything. He is the master of choosing where to go. Oh shit! So, so is he flying you basically at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I did. So it does not come across that way. It come across as like you were flying and he was balancing on you, and you still yeah. had ability. Oh, so he it, it's actually in. the opposite. He is basically just clicking his feet under, and all I can do is just to keep my legs and arms straight out. And uh, because if I just relax, it's going to be super heavy. If I start sinking in, he will need to hold me up with his legs so that's not going to be comfortable so i just need to kind of make that pressure or deep pressure between us as light as possible while flying well yeah and then hope that he's making good decisions because i'm just a passenger basically i remember mm -hmm. like at the moment where you guys had to release you were like okay that's enough or some i don't know if it was in in like norwegian or whatever but you're like okay we're done now like you get yeah. off of me so i can manage my shit <laughs> yeah, yeah it was um I, I think i was asking him to let go of me and yeah, he, yeah. He, actually he kept on going a little bit further and i was like yeah, dude, 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 get, get off yeah, exactly yeah I, yeah I was getting uncomfortable amazing um Espen, I, do you know I'll, I'll follow with uh, maybe one final one final one before we do this. Um, I've heard of one thing, like so. I've I've not done much within the world of wingsuiting or or research within it. I actually, as a young guy, I showed Tom and Tracy like a few when I was like 14, 15, I was I showing Tom and Tracy videos like go like early GoPro videos when it was like the GoPro two and stuff like that of like really early like uh like wingsuiting stuff. Um. I've heard, I'm not sure if I get this right, but I want to say that there's a line called the Death Star. Is that, is that accurate? Is there a place called Death Star or something like that where it's called the Death Star? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> I've, I've heard it super gnarly. Have you, have you done that? Have you partaken in, in that line? <laughs> I, actually, I, honestly, I don't know if I've done it. And since I don't really know, I would assume that I've never done the Death Star line mm -hmm. and um where is the death star now it, i i've been you know i'm so so i'm based in norway and yeah it's it's amazing to jump here so i spend i would say 90 percent of my base jumping time up in norway and then on every now and then i go down to the alps down into france or switzerland or italy uh, and i go jumping there and the irony in those trips is that they're mostly projects. It's like I'm being hired to film someone or mm -hmm. I have this specific reason to go there purely professionally. And uh, I go there and I film and I go home. Mm -hmm. And to go there and truly explore all the different lines and really like get familiar with the area, you don't want to go there on a job. You want to go there and spend a month just being on a vacation, base shipping everything you find, and you know, get to know people properly. And uh, I haven't fully done that in my life. And it kind of annoys me that I haven't spent more time in the Alps because seriously, the, the best wingsuit base shipping you can do in the world is in the European Alps. That, that's like the place to go to. You have the biggest altitude difference, amazing lines, and 
it's almost embarrassing to say that I'm, I'm not the right person to ask about wingsuit base jumping in the Alps. It's weird because I've done it for so many years and I should know the area better, but the world is big and life is long. So at some point <laughs> I'm going to fly the Death Star. <laughs> dude, the image of the Death Star, like, look, dude, the image of the Death Star, come on, man. Like, you know, if I, can, that... I can pull up an image. I have, I, I've, I've Googled it. Like, I, do you want me to pull up an image of the light? Yeah, I'm yeah, pretty yeah. Sure. <laughs> One second, let me see what I can do. Here. There's also one that you showed us both way back in the day where it was just a, a like a rock arch. And guys were bombing. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was that was crazy that's, as well. That's, that's the uh, that's what ah, is that going? Wow, that's a Death Star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, first of all, I have never jumped a Death Star. I believe it's pretty new line. It's kind of like popped up the last uh, six, seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. Like at least truly, it's like a deep, narrow canyon. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it looks super badass. I, I think it is in Italy. Okay. I might okay. be mistaken. I might be mistaken. But the, there yeah. are some really cool videos of, of people flying that line. I know that the GoPro Bomb Squad have done a couple of jumps that are really cool. And uh, point on no return. <laughs> um, That's my This girl. is the video. This, yeah, girl. this is the video you're talking about. Yes. Are you? Cool. So um, I'll just uh, I'll just hit play on this. I'm going to quickly run to the loo while we do that. And then uh, when the video finishes, we'll maybe have a couple more questions and then round it out. What, what do you guys think? We've hit the two-hour mark. How's that, that sound great. for everyone? That yeah. sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great. So as, as, as we start on this, um, Ooh, just give second. me an idea. We talked about the Death Star and we talked about um, Bodhi showed me one, you know, again, early days. This is probably in 2000, 2008, something like that. Like that where uh, just getting a little getting bit, a little of, an bit echo of an right echo now. right now oh are you sorry yeah yeah um um still, still there still there oh sorry it might be because i'm sharing sound here let's do the video tom and then ask questions okay okay cool go for it when i think of what i am addicted to it's not jumping off a mountain it's it's not risking my life it's flying Oh man. oh man. <laughs> and then the moment that you, you step off further than you can go back. Kind of like if you jump into a really, really cold river and the moment you like commit to step off the rock and you can't go back to the rock anymore and you're like, oh fuck, this is gonna be cold. Three, two, one. My name is Amber, and I'm a professional skydiver. I'm here in Brento in Italy with Espen Fadnas, my boyfriend, as my mentor. I'm going to do my first wingsuit base jump. That's really scary. <laughs> Seriously scary. Definitely the most scary thing I've ever done.
is making you nervous? Uh, I don't know. Nothing in particular. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I have this feeling that I'm about to do something that's really scary, but it's like my mind is blocking it out, so I'm not even really thinking about it. But why would this be so scary compared to the other base jumps you did? I'm not sure if I'm like more scared than another base jump. Because now it, this, just, this you have way more. I think I'm just scared of doing a base jump. Every time I'm really, really scared on an exit point or even hiking there, I'm like, oh, why am I even doing this? In honesty, I don't really like the feeling of fear. It kind of sucks. It sucks to lose people and it also sucks a little bit to lay in bed at night and wonder if you're still going to be alive next week. It is the most dangerous thing you can do, almost. I think it actually is. It's almost like people who base jump or choose to do something scary or risky. It's like we're kind of cursed with this real love for the feeling of overcome the fear. With Espen, it's the, the most special relationship I've ever had with a person. We spend many hours talking about what we're gonna do, how we're gonna do it, things that I should think about. I, obviously, because we spend so much time together, there's always things going through my head and it's super nice that every time I think of something, Espen is right there and I can ask him straight away. I think the only thing that would make me consider stopping is if I was to lose Espen. I, uh, I can't justify sitting at home and not going out and doing something that inspires me. That to me, it might sound cliche, but that to me is uh, it's way more risky than just going out and breathing and living. Beating right now, I don't know about you guys. I just <laughs> want to say my heart is beating so fast right now. One Holy thing, that, one, one, one thing that was really, really interesting, interesting is uh, uh, still echoing. Still echoing. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's just because we're sharing sound. All right, go, go, for, for, it, it, go for it then. One. Oh. able to fly as a human and actually learn and progress and understand all the movements and how that works it gives me a focus and a direction it makes me feel so good and life needs to feel good <laughs> that was intense. <sighs> <Fuck. laughs> 
It was nice to see you there. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's a big moment. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I'm shaking. That was beautiful, dude. That was really yeah, cool. Very romantic ending there. Yeah, yeah really she was. It, it seemed like she was um, doing a bit of her breathing just to calm down right there at the edge. You could see that she was, you know, just trying to let things settle down a little bit to get as as calm as possible before she tipped over. That was awesome, man. That was really cool. And you're yeah, right. It, show, it shows sky. It shows wingsuiting in a different, you know, in sort of a different way. That that lead up and those couple shots of just standing on that snow, looking over the edge, and what that would feel like. You really got a sense of that. Just that tilt right there is pretty cool. It, it's a really scary thing to jump off the first time. It's such a. It's like you know she questions it a little bit as well. Like why is she doing it? Why is she doing it? Why is she allowing herself to feel this much discomfort? Because it is when you're pushing yourself that far, you 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 dry in your mouth, you can't you can't you don't have any hunger, you, your heart is pumping, you, and and then that, that breathing, you know, as in so many other challenges in life, breathing is important, huh? It's like mm. to find that kind of zen find that um, balance like tune down a little bit that um, tension level in your body and and manage to find the right tension level it, it, it's a, it's hard but it's so key so key to to perform well whether like pretty much no matter what you're going to do yeah. really cool man yeah that yeah. was that was absolutely incredible and i think um i think actually the thing that stood out to me more in that actually was the amount of support that you were providing and and you know like like amber said you know she wouldn't be doing this without you and and she wouldn't continue if it wasn't for you as well so i think it's it's awesome that you guys support each other and push each other and motivate each other and you know um dude i i mean i'll 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 kind of round out by saying i have been both surprised perplexed amazed and, uh, and really, really glad that we have had the chance to talk to you today. It has been more than a pleasure. It's been an honor. And you are an incredible human being who sees the world in an amazing way. And uh, thank you, man, for allowing me to ask you some questions and, and allowing us to take some of your time, uh, some of your very, very important time in your life. You know, we, we, we really appreciate you giving us a, a few moments of your life, dude. This is it's been real special for me. I'll, I'll tell you that. Thank you. And yeah. for, for me, it's uh, I find it so interesting to talk to both of you because you don't have the basketball and you both have, have uh, skate skating, and it's mm. it's much easier to speak to people that are passionate about something because mm -hmm. ultimately it is about having a passion. It's about having something in life that you find inspiring and something that drives you forward something that gets you up in the morning something that keeps being there you know you want to go out and do something and uh i think that that's how we 
the three of us relate to each other. That that's how it's easy to have a conversation going and define mutual respect and mutual interesting conversations and and uh, learn. Oh, yeah. Amazing, dude. Yeah, and uh, let's just say it: you are the world champion of uh, of the sport of wingsuit. And you said the the championships are coming up again in August. Is that right? That is true. Now. The funny thing about it is, <laughs> championships is in Russia, and Russia just got pretty much kicked out of sport for two years. So in uh, ten days from now, they're going to have a, a meeting and discuss whether it's possible to host the world championships in Russia. Because the, the the verdict they had is that they can't. But of course, skydiving has pretty much nothing to do with EPO in biking or athletics. You know, like it's just a different thing. We you, you, yeah. you can't use drugs and fly faster like it, it doesn't really <laughs> add up so that it's a non-issue in our sport and mm. uh because of that they're trying to argue that you know it's, it's like having a competition in skateboarding or chess or mm. surfing like this like drug enhancing part of sports has nothing to do with us and yeah. we are hurt by it so Maybe, maybe not. I will defend the title in August. And, uh, but if it doesn't happen, I, I guess it's going to be postponed until next year. And uh, that's okay. Now I'm going to keep the title for another year. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, we will, if it's in August, we will be watching. If it's delayed, we'll be certainly um, interested in following what your escapades are. Um, do you want to shout out your socials to any fans out there that want to keep up with what's going on in your life currently? I think the main place to, to follow up on what's going on would be uh, my Instagram account, which mm -hmm. is uh, my name straightforward. It's at Esten Fadness. And um, I'm posting there very often, I would say in average several times a week. And uh, I'm not the kind of guy who posts several times a day. Uh, I need some kind of quality. It need to be something that I make. I'm, it's like we are like if you follow me you can also see a lot of the people in the sport that are also mm. substantially in you know trying to do something trying to create something cool and uh we're all in this little family of people that are dreaming and envisioning what is the next step in human flight what is the next step of, of how we can you know charge harder from a mountain or do more technical stuff and um, so if you follow me on instagram you will probably see some really fun videos and uh, feel free to drop me a message. Um, I'm normally answering every single one of them. So it's good Legend. fun to share, to share the sport. <laughs> Legend. Well, um, guys, you know what it is. This has been the very first uh, podcast of season two of Homie and the Dude. And boy, it was a banger to start season uh, two off with. So thank you so much, uh, Espen. It's been an absolute pleasure. As always, guys, um, hit us with a like and follow on Facebook, a subscribe on YouTube, and a follow on Instagram. Uh, all of that really, really helps us out. And guys, if you can, share one of our podcasts on your social media. You never know who would love to hear Espen talk about wingsuiting in your life. So please share it out, guys. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Espen. Thanks, Espen. Thank you. Right. Take care, man. Cheers. Right. We're chugging through. We're loving doing this stuff for you guys. Um, if you want to support us, if you want to make sure that we can keep getting you know, better quality set, better quality lights, make the filming better. Bigger, um, bigger batteries for the camera. Bigger batteries for the camera. <laughs> yes! <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you can do that by just liking, following the page, and subscribing to the YouTube channel. That is what really makes a difference to us.